and uh, I'm quite excited about it. It's uh, certainly an, an interesting book. It's a unique book. And last week I talked about, there's a few, we went through a lot of the unique traits of it. It's one of only two books that's named for a woman. It's kind of interesting, kind of awesome. And, uh, but it's, it's most peculiar because it's, it's one of the only books in the Bible, only apart from one other, that God is never mentioned by name, but it's uh, more so here than in any other book, that God is completely not referred to directly uh, in the entire book. And it's something that makes it quite peculiar. But even though God is not mentioned, as we looked at last week, um, we still see him in the text. In every chapter, we're going to be seeing God's presence in the text and in the story. He's active through his providence, is what we talked about last week, and we'll be continuing to touch on this throughout the book as it's kind of pointed to in different angles as we go through it. But God is working and acting through his providence, working in various situations that seem kind of random, but it's actually God's hand behind it, and also through the characters themselves to fulfill a purpose that he has. And ultimately, his purpose in this book is the salvation of the Jews. There's this plot to wipe them out completely, to eradicate them, and God is working behind the scenes to keep that from having to protect them. And by proxy, we see in this story that it's a fulfillment of the promise for our salvation today. Because if there are no Jews, if the Jews had been destroyed then, then there is no Jesus, there's no cross, there's no resurrection. And so there's a great hope within this book uh, for us today and God, and seeing how God works his plans out for good. And we can see that in the story of Esther. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm just yeah, looking to see all you guys taking your Bibles out. No, I'm just kidding. No pressure. No pressure, guys. Uh, we're going to read through Esther 2, and I'm, I've asked Bex to come, this is my lovely wife, uh, to read chapter 2 of Esther for us. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This adv advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jai the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. 
Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed to the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six um, with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done with her, he was, when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Ooh, that was a lot of text. I'm glad that I didn't read that. So it starts off with this word, later. And I talked about last week how over this... Uh, whole book. It actually goes over about 10 years, and, uh, but you don't really feel that when you go from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And so it just gives us this one word later, and, uh, but it actually represents the passing of about four years of time, or at least four years at least from what we know, and a few big events that happened during that time. And just, just to kind of give us a little bit of an understanding of kind of what's going on behind the scenes uh, in the empire at the time, <clears throat> this is the, this was 
between chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have the four-year Persian campaign against Greece. And last week, we read how he kind of takes 180 days, and he, this is how the whole kind of chapter or the whole story begins. And he's demonstrating his wealth and power to all of the kind of generals and officials, the princes of the land. And he's kind of basically trying to show them that he has what it takes to mount a successful campaign against Greece. And uh, we know that he had quite a large army, at least a third of a million troops. It was quite big. Uh, but the Greeks proved to be much more fierce and well-trained and prepared than Xerxes had predicted, and of course none so famous as the 300, the stand of the 300 Spartans. I think there's like a movie about that or something. And uh, although there was actually about 7,000 soldiers, but those 300 Spartans were the turning of the tide for the Persians. And though they're defeated, it was at great cost, and so we kind of and actually they had quite a few other humbling experiences with the Spartans and in the end the Greeks kind of proved to be too difficult to conquer and so this is kind of the Xerxes that we're kind of introduced to at the beginning with this one word later this is kind of all the things that have just transpired so on the one hand he's kind of just coming back from having experienced a quite painful campaign and also, now let's read the rest of verse 1. So later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So needless to say, the king returned from his campaign. He's a bit disappointed. And on top of everything else, he has this even greater disappointment of kind of coming home to an empty bed. So it's like, oh, you know, he's like kind of moping around the castle. You kind of get this sense and it took some time, obviously. I mean, a four-year campaign is, you think that that would be enough to subside anybody's anger for any reason. I've never been so bitter with somebody that that wouldn't be enough to cool me down. So he's cooled down finally from his kind of drunken, rash decree that he made. And it's, it's interesting. It's, he remembered what she did and what he had done. There's kind of a little bit of, I think he's maybe feeling a bit of regret there. And if you don't remember, or if you weren't here last week, we saw... After that 180 days where he's kind of preparing to show, hey, I'm ready to go into battle, blah, 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 he throws a big party kind of to celebrate uh, like his hopefully future success. I'm not really sure what his intention there was, but he, they do a seven-day uh, party and feast. And at the kind of in the midst of this or towards the end, he kind of calls for his wife, Vashti, to come to him. And it says that she was very beautiful. So he's like drunk with all of his friends. All the important people are there. I mean, these are the guys that really matter. And he wants to show her off. And they send word to her and she's like, I ain't nobody's trophy. I don't know what she said. But she didn't come for whatever reason and uh, didn't want to, uh, or didn't agree to come, didn't want to obey what the king commanded. And he gets really angry. And he decrees that, okay, if you're not going to come when I want you, then you're never coming again. And he makes a decree that she can never come into his presence again. And also that she would be stripped of her title as queen. And then they actually go on to even make a decree that all women must obey their husbands. It's a little bit absurd. It's what happens, I guess, a bunch of drunk, powerful men get together and make a bunch of decisions. It gets a little bit out of hand, apparently. And, what's, and now we kind of see him going like, well, that was maybe a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. We don't know. But it's kind of the feeling I think you get in verse 1. And because a king's decree in the, during this time was final. Even the king could not undo his decree. 
There's no way that he could undo this decree. We'll see that actually later in another decree that he makes that he can't undo. So he has to make another decree to kind of counter it. Uh, but he cannot undo a decree. And so now it says he remembered Vashti. It's like, yeah, he did. <laughs> he, he remembered her. He's a bit lonely. The bed was a bit cold when he got back from this long campaign. Now, don't get me wrong. He had other women, I'm sure. And, but she is, was clearly something special to him. And he, I think he maybe missed her. He was, it was a big deal to be queen. And only one held this title, though he uh, most certainly had other wives, or at least most likely had other wives. And he definitely had concubines. And so, but he only had one queen. Only one held that title as queen. And in verse 2 to the 3, we see the attendants, they... They say, okay, well, you know, they're kind of tired of seeing him kind of mope around. So he say, let's let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And they'll be brought, they'll be kind of brought from every province. And that's 127 provinces. So these like people went out and searched through 127 different provinces. And we don't know how many, but anyway, and they're all brought into the harem at the citadel. So that's the in Susa, that's the capital city. That's where he is, and this, the harem. That's basically this kind of big housing area, if you will, for all of his women that were just kind of waiting for him to call on them. It's not a great life, I would imagine. So it's a bit over the top, right? The king's made kind of a dumb mistake, and he's feeling some regret. Maybe he's feeling a bit lonely. He's like, oh, you know, nobody knew me like Vashti knew me. I don't know. He's missing the queen. And now he's kind of just like dragging his feet around the castle. And they're like, all right, we can't. This is getting ridiculous. We need to do something. Let's round up all of the beautiful virgins in the whole land. That ought to do it. And what I assume is what would have been hundreds of women. I mean, like 127 provinces. We don't know how. It wasn't like one from each. It was just like, go and get women. So it would have been insane, a just crazy amount. And in verse 4, it says, His advice appealed, this advice appealed to the king. Imagine that. It cheered him up to round up all of the beautiful virgins in all of the land to be brought before him. It's a little bit over the top. This whole book has a lot of over the top things in it. We'll see as we go through. So we have kind of this first known beauty contest. They're all kind of rounded up to kind of compete, if you will, before the king. In verse 4, then let the young woman who pleases the king to be, uh, that pleases the king, be queen instead of Ashley. So the winner becomes queen, the most powerful woman in the known world. Certainly nothing small as queen of the Persian Empire. So he is looking for not just a woman, not just someone beautiful. He would have had access to beautiful women. He's looking for the one. He had the women. He had many beautiful women at his, in his harem. I mean, he has a harem. So, But Vashti was clearly more than that to him. And so he's not looking to simply fill the bed. I believe he wants a queen, a companion, a woman of not only outer beauty, he doesn't want somebody that just looks beautiful, but somebody, one of good character, somebody that's going to stand out. The queen holds the ear of the king, and this gave her a lot of authority, a lot of power 
in the land. And so not just anyone would do. It couldn't have been just any woman. Now, who was Esther? What is going to be so special about her? Well, in verse 7, Mordecai, so it says Mordecai had a cousin named Hadesh, or yeah, Hades, Hadessa, interesting word, her name, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Now, that was her Hebrew name. That was Esther's Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name, meaning star, just to throw that at you guys. And Esther grew up in a foreign land, okay? She grew up in an, in an exiled world. She wasn't one of the people there. They had been taken, uh, as it says, Mordecai was kind of descendant from the people who had originally been taken there uh, a few generations before. And so she's in this, she's a foreigner. She's growing up in a foreign land and her people had been kind of brought there long before she had been born. And because Mordecai tells her to hide her identity, and because we know where this story is going, that there's going to be this kind of plot to see the Jews completely eradicated, I think we can safely assume there was some serious anti-Semitism in the land. They were not liked by the people in general. That's why he's like, don't say, don't reveal your nationality just yet. So this is Esther's beginning. This kind of tells us a little bit more about who she is. She's born into a world of, of hardship in a lot of ways. From the very start, she's an orphan and one of the, the minority in the land that is, would have definitely been looked down on in a lot of ways. And so she's been adopted by Mordecai, who's her cousin, who, but of course would have been quite a bit older than her. And uh, he's taken care of her. He's kind of raised her to become, he's been like a father to her, right? He took her on as a daughter. And from what we'll find out about Mordecai, and we said what it says uh, in a later. I'm not sure exactly which verse now, but later on in the text, it says that she was, you know, she was trained, instructed by Mordecai. And from what we know about him, I believe that she was really taught well. She had an understanding and grew up with the with the ways of her forefathers, with the ways of the Jewish people, with the ways of God. She knew about who God was, and I think that it changed her. And we'll see that a lot in chapter four, where she calls on the people to fast. And also she is willing to sacrifice herself for the people. She has this very good, genuine character. And I think a lot of it is the way that she was raised. She has a foundation for this good character. And we'll see this kind of demonstrated again and again through her and through her life. Now, of course, verse 7 tells us also that Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And I, I don't want to... <laughs> that's, that's no doubt a favorable quality to have. And, and I certainly wouldn't want to denote kind of the value or the importance of that in the story, right? It's clear that her beauty is what places her in the position that she's going to be in. She never would have been taken if, if she didn't have her beauty. She wouldn't have been put into the king's palace. And from the, her perspective, though, I think we can see this from two different angles. And this is what we're going to be able to kind of go from here to see her character and the, the nature of her character. Because she has two options here or two views that she could take. Because it's her beauty that draws the attention, right, of those that are finding the, finding the young virgins, the beautiful virgins, and bringing them to be into, or bringing them into the king's harem, bringing them to be a concubine for the king. And in verse 8, it says that she was taken. And I've, there's some debate on what exactly that means, but it doesn't sound like she had a lot of choice in the matter. It sounds like she was taken against her will. 
So she had a hard beginning, and now she finds herself being taken against her will to become one of the king's concubines. Not a really great life. They lived in this kind of big area, uh, kind of like a castle type thing, where they, they would just wait for the king to call on them. And that's, I mean, they were pampered, they were taken care of, but that's, that was their life, to just sit there and wait for the king to want them. And uh, not, an exa- not exactly every young girl's dream, I would imagine. And so she's taken to be a part of this against her will. And Esther could have become angry or bitter. But Esther's beauty is really more than skin deep. I believe this is because of the way that she was raised, again, by Mordecai. He raised her well. And she knew how to live a, go- how to live a godly life, how to be one of good character in the way that she conducted herself. And if we look at verse 8 through 9, so Esther was then, was then taken to the king's palace, entrusted to Haggai, that's the eunuch who's in charge of all of the, the harem. And she was first taken in with all, with all of them, right? All of the women are just kind of brought in together. They're all just kind of lumped in together. So there was nothing really that, that raised her up any more than any of the other ones. I'm sure she was, she was obviously she was very beautiful, but I'm sure that all of them were beautiful because that was the whole point, right? And so here's where we see her character being something that takes her above and beyond. And in verse 9, it says, She pleased him. So it's talking about uh, the kind of the Haggai, the eunuch who's in charge. And he won, and, and sorry, pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food and assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her moved her into the best place in the harem so right from the beginning esther went from a beautiful young woman who was taken and placed into the king's harem along with all of the other women to being put into the best place given the best servants, the best treatment, right from the beginning, already kind of taken apart because of the favor that she found with him. Now, I believe there's a principle here. And our title for today is Winning Favor. Because in verse 15, it's not just this guy. It says that in verse 15, it says, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Everybody she came in contact with immediately sensed an inner beauty, immediately sensed there's something different about her. She immediately won their favor by the way that she conducted and acted. And we'll see that also in the way that she conducts herself later as she saves the, the Jewish people and the way that she conducts herself with, with a, a certain, yeah, just wisdom. But here at the beginning, she immediately finds favor with everyone she meets. And I wonder, or I think it's, it's no accident that this favor obviously was on her, right? First of all, we know that God certainly is blessing her. God's providence is still at work here, working this kind of odd situation out for his good purpose, right? For a greater good for down the road. But it's her character that brings about such favor with everyone she meets. It's her character that affected them. And we are... Or the question is, are we winning the favor of those around us? Are we winning the favor of those around us by the way we conduct ourselves? I believe 
There is something favorable and attractive to the world around us in the virtues of genuine Christianity when we really live it. So how are we living? How are we interacting with our boss at work? How are we interacting with our teachers, our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors? If I asked your boss, if I asked a teacher, if I asked a co-worker of yours, if I asked a couple of your friends to describe you, really tell me, who is Giannis? Yeah. Seriously, after service, if you have something, if you have something about him, tell me. Who, who, if I asked some, some of the people around you to describe you, what would they say? Would you come across as somebody who's favorable? Someone with a genuine inner beauty? Someone of good character? Now, don't misunderstand me. I know that when we live as Christians in this world, some people are going to hate us. Some people are going to despise us and everything that we stand for, everything we believe in. But I want to also be clear that if everybody around you hates you, don't blame it on Christianity. Well, everybody hates me, but it's just because I'm such a good Christian. They don't understand. I don't know. That's, that would be ridiculous. So let's define this. If I had to sum up all the, the traits in kind of a nice, neat little box, because there's a lot of things we could talk about, a lot of things we could unpack, I would say that the best way to do it, and when I say summing it up, like I'm talking about the way, things that, are, that should be manifested in our life, meaning these are things that people should say about us as Christians. This should be, some of these things should be things that they say about you when they're taught, when I ask them to define who you are, to describe who this person is. And I would say the best way to sum it up would be the fruit of the Spirit. Because when we belong to Christ, we have the Spirit of God within us, the Holy Spirit lives within us, and so the fruit of that should be manifesting in our lives. If you don't know them, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These should be manifesting in our lives. And I believe when these are truly and genuinely seen in the way we live and the way that we interact with the world around us, we will see, to some extent, favor. It will change the way people see it. And you think, well, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds like, you know, we're earning something, or I don't know, this is a bit confusing. Let me give you a real-life example, okay? So you, I think the best example is a workplace, okay? So if you're working in a company, and you go to work, and you come to work on Monday morning, and everybody else is like, crap, it's Monday, man, the weekend was too short, and you're like, hey, I have joy. I have joy to be here. There's something different in you. Or if you go to work and you have peace with your coworkers, even the ones that are like, "Mm, harder to have peace with, not such peaceable people. Or you're patient with with the customers that are hard to be patient with. And you're kind to the people who are rude to you. And you're a faithful worker in day after day. You're going to have favor with your boss. And so I would say the question or the thing that comes to my mind is, as Christians today, I think often 
I mean, we should be the model employees. We should be the model students. We should be the models of, of what these things look like. If you really see these things in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, if you're really seeing those things in your life, it's going to be attractive. And it's going to bring favor. And this applies to all relationships in our lives. Again, I'm not saying that everything's going to go well for you. I'm not talking about that kind of favor. And I'm not saying that things are always going to go your way. But that's the true nature, the true value of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit means that I have these traits no matter what. Even when things aren't going my way, I still have peace. I still have joy. I still have love. Even when I am not feeling loved, even when I'm, I have joy, even in the midst of my trials and suffering, I have peace that surpasses the understanding of my circumstances. True Christian character filled with the Holy Spirit will bring people to a place around, the people around us, it'll bring them to a place of really asking the question, or it should, bring them to, to force them to ask, what is it about them that's so different? What is it? There's something I just can't quite get. They seem, to be, they seem to have joy even though their life isn't going very well right now. They're kind to people who hate them and are mean and rude to them. I don't, I don't get it. Why don't, they, why don't they just say something back? How can they show such restraint? How can they have such self-control in this world that's so self-indulgent? What is it? What is this love they seem to have in their hearts for their God and for each other? What is that? Where does that come from? And this is not something that's unique only to Esther's story. The Bible is full of examples where the character of a person wins favor with those around them, even in hard situations. I think of two examples off the top of my head, or as I was preparing this off the top of my head. Uh, Daniel, who was taken into captivity um, just a, a little bit before this into uh, Babylon. And yet, when he, even though he's taken into captivity, even though he's in this kind of hard situation, he finds great favor with everyone around him because he has a different thing, he has different character traits than everyone else. He has restraint and self-control. He doesn't just eat all of the king's food and get fat like everybody else. He was, he only ate the food because he, he knew he couldn't eat the unholy food, so he only ate fruits and vegetables. He had wisdom in the way that he conducted himself, and he found favor. Joseph is another one I think of. He was sold into slavery in the midst of, I mean, why wouldn't you just get angry and, and hate the world in that situation? And yet he made the most of it. He even found joy and, and peace in the midst of all of that. And there was something about him. And people gave him a lot of, gave him, immediately gave him control over things. And Potter, he was sold to Potiphar and then he was the head of the house. And then when that didn't work out very well, he's put into the deepest dungeon of prison and then he's running the prison because he found such favor because of this character. He had something different about him. And with all three of these examples, with Daniel and Joseph and Esther, this favor found in them through their character in connection, and this is what we'll kind of also be pointing to, in connection with God's providence and plan, 
they are then elevated to really high positions. Verse 17, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than, more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. Now that was not merely her outer beauty. Nobody's that good looking. She had something that set her apart. She had something in her character that was attractive a genuineness in the way that she conducted herself. And in verse 17, so he set a royal, the rest of verse 17, so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. So she's been elevated to the highest position that she could. And this in itself is amazing, right? To see her kind of, her character, to see the way that she is, and even though she kind of comes from this really hard beginning to be elevated to this high position, but I want to be clear that God's purpose is not only to see an individual elevated, ever. It's never to see a person be elevated to a great position. There's always a purpose in it. And we have the Holy Spirit within us. And when we are seeking God, praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul urges us to do, we should be praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we will see the fruit of the Spirit manifest more and more within us and within the way that we conduct ourselves, within the way that we live out our days. And I believe this, is, this will see us finding favor amongst those around us because it will be obvious that there's something different about us. The world doesn't have the Holy Spirit within them. They don't have those fruits that we should be seeing in our lives. And it will be attract, attracted to them, attractive to them. But this is not the whole story. The Spirit of God will also be working things out for God's greater purpose. He doesn't just want to see us have fruit in our lives. He doesn't want to just see us find favor so that we, for favor's sake, so that we feel good about ourselves. Look, everybody likes me. Or even that we would be elevated to a high position. There's always a purpose in it. God wants to accomplish something through us. It's always something beyond us. We affect more than just our own circle when we live in the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 18. So the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, and for, his, uh, for, his noble, for all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the province, provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So, First of all, we see this kind of immediate, or the favor of Esther is immediately kind of distributed into the kingdom, right? There's a great feast. The king reduces, actually reduced the taxes during that time uh, for that, I'm not sure exactly how long, but there was a period of time where he actually reduced the taxes. It's a holiday. Nobody's got to go to work. And those royal gifts or those, the giving of gifts that he, it says is probably was uh, also food and drink for the people so that everybody could join in the celebration. So it was, we see kind of this immediate um, chain reaction where the entire empire is kind of blessed through the favor that was on Esther. And of course that will continue even more so when she is put in a position to save the people, to save the Jewish people. But we see it, this immediate reaction already from the beginning. When we live this out, when we live out true Christian virtues and principles, especially found in the fruit of the Spirit, we will be an impact on the world around us. We will affect the world around us. The full, the full extent of that impact 
I believe we'll never fully know. We'll never know what God is truly doing because I think it's, it's not just directly those within our circle that we're going to affect, but the circles of those people within our circle. And that can multiply in all directions very quickly. What does God really want to accomplish through us? It starts here. It starts with seeking to live our lives based on these fruits, on these truths, on these principles. And even the king himself will be saved, actually, because of the favor found in Esther. Mordecai saves the king. In verse 19, he was sitting at the, at the king's gate. And this, this right here, him sitting at the gate, uh, that was kind of a, a position for a judge when it says that he was sitting at the gate. Um, that was where everybody kind of went through. Everybody came there. It was a kind of a gathering place. And so a lot of times there would be like some kind of judge that would be placed there. And this is what Mordecai was most likely, um, he was most likely some kind of judge. And this is a position that he also most likely obtained because of Esther. So she might have like, you know, heard there's a position opening up for a judge and whispered to the king, I know this really great guy, it's Mordecai, he's a really great judge. I don't know exactly how it happened, but it was probably her influence, at least the way the text unfolds, especially when we look at the whole book. It was probably her influence that got him in that position. He's put in the right position at the right time. He overhears some guards that are planning to, or plotting to kill the king, and he uncovers it. And by revealing it to Esther, so again, we see that connection, that through Esther, the favor found on Esther, even the king himself is saved. And then Mordecai is given credit. So even Mordecai also then displays this principle, right, of good character when he uncovers the plot himself. He could have easily just said, who cares? I mean, this king doesn't seem to care that much about my people. Should I really care if he gets killed? He shows good character. And later, he also finds great favor. He also becomes, or he's praised and by the king later, but he's also then put into a very high position as well. Of course, it's not their goodness alone. It's not their good character alone. Mordecai is not simply lucky. He didn't just happen to be in the right place at the right time when he overheard this plot. The writer actually wants us to see God at work here. In fact, I think he's, the writer is going out of their way and going at great lengths to show God's hand within this story, even though he's not mentioned directly. There could be some practical reasons for why God isn't mentioned in this book. Perhaps it was to preserve the book longer, wherein they're not talking about God directly. It kind of has more of the appearance of a historical document alone, which would have given it more credibility. We don't know, but to the untrained eye, it may seem that there's just a lot of favorable situations and favorable coincidences. But to those who know that God is truly in control, it's obvious that it's his doing behind all of this. And here we see again, and we'll see it again and again throughout this story, the connection between these two things. The connections between the actions of the characters themselves, of the people in the story, and the sovereignty and the providence of God to accomplish a purpose, ultimately the salvation of God's people. And in conclusion, then, I'll leave you guys with this. 
What do we do practically? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is the calling card. That is the ultimate question of everything that we're doing. Am I doing this to the glory of God? Am I doing it just for myself? When we do things from a place of the Spirit, when we're walking in the Spirit, living and acting in the fruit of the Spirit, everything we do will be done to the glory of God. So I want to encourage you to live by the Spirit, to walk with Christ by the Spirit, and to pray again and again to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit would be prevalent and present in your heart and life. Not simply for your sake, but for the effect and impact that you are meant to have on the world around you. When we truly do all things to the glory of God and live by the Spirit with the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit, I ask you, what purpose will God see fulfilled through you? I'll invite the band to come back up. Read Romans 8.28 as we close. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It is to his purpose that we have been called. Let our lives be of great impact on the world around us, and ultimately in all that we do to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified. Amen. I invite you now to stand as we prepare to close with one final song of worship.